Welcome into season three of Exhibit A. We are very pleased to bring you this podcast with myself, Harrison Cooper, and my co-host, Charles Jung. Charles, how are you? Good, Harrison. Um, it's good to be back. <clears throat> Excited to uh, present some really fun content uh, for this upcoming season. We've got a great episode for you today. We are going to be kicking the tires about jury trials in Ontario and the difference between jury trials and non-jury trials, and more specifically, a recent development in successful motions to strike jury notices. We're going to go through the historical evolution of why you have a right to be tried by a jury of your peers, and historically what the test was in order for a party to demonstrate that the jury notice should be struck. And then we're going to be comparing that with more recent changes in motions to strike jury notice as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic. Rest assured, whether a case is tried by a judge or a jury, it doesn't matter. We present the case for the trier of fact, whether it's judge or jury, and we're going to tell the story of how this car accident or slip and fall changed this person's life. And uh, the first and only book on this about jury trials uh, was written by Roger Oatley, and uh, that is the reading. I think Brian Cameron, when we had him on um, in the first season of Exhibit AOK, said that Roger's book is the only required reading for the civil litigation course that he teaches at Queen's Law School. But before we get into that, it is Friday of the Masters, and Charles and I are both golf fans. Charles, who do you think is going to win the Masters? And I guess by the time this episode is released, we will, one of us might be right, but both of us will probably be wrong. <laughs> you know, before um, what happened with, with Tiger Woods, uh, I probably would have uh, mentioned him at, at some point, but um, just sort of uh, following what's been going on. Um, I, I kind of like Jordan Spieth. I think he's sort of due for one. Um, it, it's been a, a while, uh, I think, since he's won a, a big tournament. So um, He won last weekend, so he's coming off of a win. But I think he's kind of got a reputation as a bit of a choke artist, no? That, well, that's the thing. I, I think... Um, I don't know. I, I like the guy. I think he's uh, pretty consistent. So um, I'm gonna I'm gonna go with Jordan Spieth. All right. My pick is John Rahm for completely non scientific reasons, except for the fact that he and his wife just welcomed their first baby, and we saw what happened with Fred Van Vliet Sr. during the historic Raptors 2019 championship run. He was garbage at the beginning of the playoffs. He and his wife have a baby, and then he goes off. So I'm expecting big things from John Rom uh, as the weekend progresses. I like the pick, and I like I like the reasoning even more. Awesome. Let's get into this episode of Exhibit A. All right, so we're we're going to start things off by um, just talking a little bit about. Uh, jury trials, I guess, in general, and maybe some of the history. Um, Harrison, I don't know about you, but I I'm not a huge history buff, but I do know enough that obviously the Magna Carta and history in England is how jury trials all started. Um, and it's come to the point where it's sort of an enshrined right um, for an individual in a society uh, to have this right to be able to be tried by their peers and colleagues uh, within their community. And um, obviously different countries do it in different ways. Um, I think that's an interesting discussion that we can maybe have about whether jury trials should be abolished or not. And I know those discussions have recently been canvassed again by members of the 
the civil bar, um, specifically in Ontario, because of recent circumstances. Um, but in Canada, obviously, the right to a jury trial is a, a very important one. Um, and uh, barring very significant or, um, I, I guess, serious circumstances, uh, people ha have the right to be tried by their peers. That's exactly right. So it's a, you know, it's not something that can be dispensed with easily. And what I mean by that is when an action is commenced, either or both of the sides can choose the method of trial in a civil action. Criminal is different. In criminal, it's the decision of the accused and only the accused. Whereas in civil cases, the plaintiff or the defendant can file a jury notice along with their statement of claim or statement of defense. And if they do that, then the issues in dispute are, are to be determined by a jury of their peers. Historically, juries and plaintiffs were compatible. And for many years, as I understand it, uh, plaintiff lawyers filed jury notices along with their statements of claim in personal injury lawsuits because they believed that they were able to get uh, better results from a, a jury trial, six strangers, than they would have gotten from a judge alone. More recently, that changed. And maybe, Charles, can you talk about uh, the kind of evolution? And, and when I say recently, I mean within the last generation, so maybe 30 years or so. Right. So, uh, again, um, for, for our listeners out there, um, you know, I, I was called in 2016. And so uh, a, a lot of um, my information and knowledge uh, comes from some of the limited experiences that I have uh, with, with uh, trials, but also from more senior counsel who have passed down this uh, information and knowledge down to me and obviously in discussions with uh, other lawyers as well. But th there has been a clear and market um, trend towards um, lesser or smaller uh, jury verdicts and awards in um, personal injury cases. And uh, there's a lot of um, speculation may, may, may not be the right word, but um, anecdotal discussion, I would say. Right. Yeah. And, um, and part of that is just sort of a sidebar here is, is because that in Canada, uh, for listeners who may not be uh, aware of this, uh, lawyers cannot ask any questions uh, to the jury, uh, like down in the States. So we have absolutely no idea what kind of background or uh, maybe certain life circumstances or experiences that juries are bringing with them into the courtroom. There's no voir dire process. We can we don't know anything beyond uh, their job and um, where they live. Name, location, occupation, and occupation is is very general. Um, you know, they could write construction, and they could be the chief engineer of a company, or they could be a shovel in the ground kind of construction worker. And we right. would have no idea, and we're not entitled to find that out when we either select that person or we use the peremptory challenge to get them off the jury pool. Exactly. And that, that's part of the reason why, it, again, it sort of informs what we're talking about, because we don't necessarily know some of the decisions um, that is driving these juries um, and these smaller awards. That's why I say maybe it is more speculation and anecdotal experience. Uh, but having said that, um, one of the things that we've clearly seen in the plan of personal injury bar recently is a significant increase in direct consumer advertising. And that is one of the uh, hot button issues um, that is facing our bar. Um, and uh, we, we can't help but 
notice uh, that there is a correlation um, in between the, the rise um, in this direct-to-consumer advertising for personal injury lawyers uh, and the impact that it's had on jurors and perhaps their perception and their views towards not only plaintiffs, but also plaintiffs' lawyers, because uh, those two are obviously related. Um, it's it's very well known in, in, in the social science and, and data that uh, jurors do transfer their feelings um, from plaintiffs' lawyers onto the plaintiffs. So if a juror doesn't like the lawyer, they won't like the client. Likeability and credibility are the main factors that we can point to as an important determination in whether or not a trial is, is going to go well or, or not so well. Right. I think I've told you this in the past, Charles, but when I first joined Oatly Bigman, I did some social science experiments. Did I mention this to you before? Have we talked about it? In passing, but um, uh, you know, uh, you've got to remind me because it was. I think it's very interesting. Yeah. So basically, we were testing the hypothesis that jurors were influenced by social media advertising or advertising in general. And, you know, as you pointed out, the, the advertising wasn't always available and more recent, you know, in the last 30 years or so, lawyers were able to market and advertise direct to the public. And we can't interview jurors from a real trial. So we did this mock trial focus group study and what we did, it was a very small and, and not at all um, statistically significant amount, but I think we had two different focus groups and we exposed half of the jurors to uh, a montage of advertising. It was playing in the background on a TV while we provided a free dinner to these jurors. And then to the other control group, we provided no advertising. And what we did was we presented a real case that we had. And at the end of it, we asked the jurors to award damages for the plaintiff's personal injuries and for their pain and suffering. And so they award the damages. We compile the results. And I'll tell you about the, the analysis later. But what we also did was we administered a questionnaire and to try to figure out whether or not they believe they were influenced at all by the advertising that they had seen either in passing or on the night up. And all of the jurors who participated in the study, not a single one of them said that they were influenced by advertising. And so we thought, okay, well, that's interesting. We analyzed the results and it turns out that the jurors who were exposed to this video clip while they were eating dinner awarded damages that were significantly lower than the jurors who were not exposed to this video clip of advertising. Right, and they were both presented with the same case, same facts. They were in the room at the same time, oh, exact, right. exact same. Yeah. But the only difference was this video clip that some of that half of the jurors were shown, and the other half were not. So from that, you know, we can conclude that people—it's—it's it's this unconscious bias that you have, and you're not aware of the fact that you might be influenced or that you might be harboring these feelings of, you know, ill will towards personal injury lawyers who are advertising. Right. Um, but you know, it might actually affect your decision making. And it was, to my mind, a really interesting study and something that I bring with me as I assess and analyze you know, settlement negotiations and potential outcomes in a case if we're heading to trial. Yeah, so, so, sorry, and I'm just you know, um, thinking about that. And I, I'm curious to get your thoughts on this too. I wonder if you know, part of that is, is because um, maybe just the general public, um, they don't have as much exposure or interaction with personal injury lawyers. It's not like, uh, you know, uh, we're 
sort of in the public or in the public eye, um, for example, um, like police members or um, other occupations uh, like nurses, where you know there's there you know very often you're going to have someone in the family or you personally that have in that you know has interacted with uh, these you know members of certain professions uh, much more frequently. Whereas personal injury lawyers, I mean, you know, God forbid you ever have to you know interact with one and, and get to know them and actually have to deal with one because that means you've been seriously injured, right? They're dealing with two right now, God forbid. <laughs> um, on a personal level, that's what I mean. But, and so, I, so I, I thought about like, okay, so where did they get these perceptions from? I mean, it's, let's face it, it's TV shows and movies and, you know, probably advertisements, right? Um, and, and part of the reason I think uh, that might be important is um, that if there is such a limited avenue to get to know personal injury lawyers. Um, I mean, is there something that we could be doing in terms of, um, I don't know, like a public relations standpoint or trying to help educate people of uh, the public in terms of the role and services that we provide? It's just some food for thought, you know? All right, changing gears a little bit. Charles and I want to talk about motions to strike jury notices and kind of what the law was before COVID and how that has evolved in more recent months. So as we talked about at the top of this show, motions to strike jury notices were typically uh, very limited in, in the availability and, and the outcome of having a successful motion to strike a jury notice. Um, as we talked about at the beginning, it was a substantive right that was not dispensed with lightly because it was if a party chooses to have the issues determined by a jury then that was going to be the way that it was unless there was some very compelling reason to strike a jury notice for example if the medical evidence was you know highly technical and and not and a, you know a jury or members of the jury were not um, showing that they really understood what was happening then uh, perhaps a party might bring a motion to strike the jury notice. Or if there was some prejudice that might, you know, befall one of the parties if the case was tried by a jury, then that would be an example of, of the very high bar where a court would dispense of the jury notice and have the issues determined by a judge alone. More recently, things have changed, and I'll turn things over to Charles to uh, get this discussion started. Yeah, so one of the driving factors in, in whether a judge um, should dispense with a, a jury notice is, um, you know, they just generally speaking, they look at the prejudice uh, to the party that is bringing this motion. Um, so when we're talking about prejudice, um, specifically in the legal context, it, it means, you know, what harm or what suffering um, or what disadvantage uh, is the party going to experience as a result of whatever it is that they're alleging um, is causing that. So in this case, it's fairly obvious and kind of uh, instinctive in the sense that, okay, we've got this global pandemic going on. Um, courtrooms are, you know, restricted in terms of their ability to accommodate um, a huge number of the public because what happens during jury selection is, um, you know, they essentially bring dozens of people in the same room and uh, they roll call essentially uh, the, the members of this pool. And then um, the lawyers get to ask questions and then uh, they, they pick their jurors. That's how it would happen traditionally. Um, I'm not familiar of, uh, of any 
jury trials that have happened uh, over Zoom uh, personally. Um, so I'm not sure how that process would actually work over an electronic platform. Um, but just getting back to this um, uh, decision, or, or yeah, what, what drives the decision to strike jury notices. Um, so we, we've got this pandemic going on. Um, it means that there, there's no jury trials that can easily be accommodated uh, by what's currently um, offered in the infrastructure for these courtrooms. So uh, jury trials are essentially getting punted. Uh, they're getting adjourned, uh, sometimes in, in, in our case, where we practice out of the Central East to, um, I think, 2022. I believe the, the notice to the profession is that there's no civil jury trials until well into 2022. Um, so obviously, if you're a plaintiff and you've waited four, five, six years for this trial to happen, to be told that you're not going to have a trial for another two years or one year and a half, um, it's significant. You know that that's a, a huge um, disadvantage and prejudice that you're facing as a plaintiff. So, what tools do we have as lawyers to help accommodate and empower our clients? Is to bring these motions to strike the jury notices. That's exactly right. And and it wasn't as straightforward as as that initially. I mean, when the pandemic started, there was cases that were scheduled for trial and no one knew how long the pandemic was going to last. And motions judges were initially very reluctant to grant these motions to strike the jury notices. As the pandemic went on and we realized that it was going to be here to stay. Meanwhile, there are judicial resources available. Judges are available and willing to hear cases and try cases. They just need to do so in a COVID-friendly way. Mm -hmm. So you don't want to squander the opportunity and the squander the, the judicial resources to hear a case that is otherwise ready for trial just because of this substantive right to a jury. Um, before COVID, you know, the, the way that it was was that it was a substantive right, but not an absolute right. And it's actually a fun a uh, factor that I, I came across in researching for bringing a motion of this on my own is that the, uh, the seminal case on jury notices arise out of a, a tiger attack at African lion safari, cowls and balak. And that was the seminal case about uh, whether or not the moving party can show that the interests of justice to the parties will be better served by the discharge of the jury. Mm. And so that was kind of the, the threat of the case law that existed before COVID. And now really the, the issue of prejudice and delay is at the forefront. So there was a, initially a motion that happened and then it was overturned on appeal where they said, nope, we're gonna have to wait till this pandemic's done and we'll have this trial with a jury. And then the court of appeal uh, in Lewis and Poitras, P-O-I-T-R-A-S, at the beginning of 2020, said, uh, you know what, we're going to have to change the law here and make sure that people know that they can bring these motions. And if, there's, if the, the judge in the area says, we've got the resources, let's go ahead with the trial, uh, that's the way that it's going to prevail. And, and that's what's happened. There's been a number of cases uh, a few from our office and, and from all over the province where primarily plaintiff lawyers have been successful in bringing motions to strike jury notices. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, we're here in April. These are for the May sitting. So May of 2021, we've got cases proceeding via video conference and uh, it'll be a judge alone trial via Zoom. Right. And it, 
I, I do think um, it is worth saying that um, the the courts and obviously the uh, the bench uh, they've they've done a really great job in terms of adapting to the times and um, responding. I think to the to the calls because obviously members of of the civil bar particularly were concerned because obviously criminal cases have priority, yeah, uh, for obvious reasons. But uh, again, I, I think everyone's trying to do the best with what they have. Um, and what was interesting to me in that Lewis um, and Poitras case um, was that I think at the initial Superior Court level, uh, the plaintiffs won the motion to strike the jury notice. Right. Yeah, I didn't do a good job explaining it. No, 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 no. no that, uh, it, it was, uh, so, and, and I think what happened was the defendants appealed to the divisional court, which reversed the um, lower court's decision. Yeah. And then obviously the plaintiffs appealed to the court of appeal, which reversed the divisional court. So reinstating the original superior court judge's uh, decision. But what they emphasized uh, in that court of appeal decision was that just like you said, Harrison, like they are going to sort of entrust and empower the local judges because they will know sort of what's going on in terms of the ground level and what's happening in their local jurisdiction and how much resources they have. So I, I really like that part um, where they basically said, look, we trust the judges in whatever jurisdiction that they are, you know, Barry, Newmarket, you know, Toronto, wherever it is, to know how much uh, resources they have and their availability and uh, their ability to try these types of cases and sort of um, leave it to them. So I do think um, that case was certainly an important one. Um, but it'll be interesting to see how that sort of pans out. You know, maybe a, a motion in Toronto uh, you know, the bar is a little bit lower because, um, again, the circumstances over there are a little bit different for maybe like a city in North Bay, for example. I think absolutely. It depends on what, how the pandemic is kind of in hand or out of hand and what, when they can reasonably forecast having a, a safe jury trial without, you know, too much delay. Mm -hmm. I think it will change on a, on a jurisdictional basis and uh, who knows. Charles, what do you envision uh, when this pandemic is eventually over? What do you envision for jury trials and motions to strike jury notices? Do you think that um, the law will return to the kind of pre-COVID uh, baseline? Or do you think that there's going to be uh, potentially an added opportunity for parties to move and, and bring motions to strike jury notices? It's an interesting, uh, interesting point of discussion. Um, I guess it's really hard to say with certainty how things will actually turn out, but it looks like the way things are going, you know, with vaccines being rolled out, um, and hopefully by the end of 2021, um, we just Canada overall has a better handle on the situation and uh, we are able to have in-person jury trials again. Um, I think that is most likely the the outcome that I sort of envision. But at the same time, I think this whole situation obviously has sort of uh, re-sparked this conversation of whether, again, jury trials should be abolished. Again, that's, a, I think, a philosophical and uh, dis discussion that is worth having, uh, quite frankly. And then the other piece is, okay, now we know that electronic trials work and they're happening right now. Right. Um, so is it going to be a hybrid sometimes? Maybe, you know, it's it's difficult in a certain area because there's a pocket in Ontario where COVID-19 pandemic isn't really well managed and they have to have these Zoom trials. Um, but in other regions, it is well handled and you can have in-person jury trials. So it'll be interesting to see, I think, 
how different jurisdictions maybe use that technology and whether it's like sort of a hybrid system. Um, but I, I think it'll be interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And if you are listening to this podcast and you have an upcoming virtual trial and you want some further information, back in the beginning of the pandemic, Laura and I interviewed two partners at Lensner Slot, Sana Halwani and Dash, Paul Eric Beal, who had just come off their, it, to my mind, it was the first ever virtual trial. It was a federal case about a patent. And that was a, an online virtual trial. And so there was some great practice tips that we discussed in that podcast episode and, and all of which would still hold true today. So uh, if you are approaching a virtual trial, go back and give that podcast episode a listen. And, and for any listeners who, who are practicing and, and uh, do, try, do jury trials, I mean, again, it's a point of controversy and I think it uh, sort of sparks passionate responses, but we are curious to hear what people's thoughts are and whether jury trials should be abolished or not. Yeah, let us know. Mm -hmm. Okay, I think that that just about does it for this episode of Exhibit A. Charles, great to have you back, and I'm looking forward to recording a bunch more content with you this season. Good to be back, and uh, same here. Goodbye, everybody. Goodbye, everybody.